Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you've come here via YouTube and want to know more about what we do, it's easy. Just head on over to officehours.global. That's kind of our main portal website uh, for information and links about the show. Our second hour today, we'll be meeting Alex's brother, Joe Lindsay, who's a highly regarded Steadicam operator, and he'll be demonstrating the new Steady, or not the new, the, the existing Steadicam Trinity. Uh, fascinating look. If you've ever been really curious about Steadicams and how they get those brilliant floating shots, in major motion pictures, TV shows, and everywhere else. Today's your day. Should be an excellent second hour. Um, But this is the first hour. Mitch, what do we have on tap for our first question today? Thank you, Bill. I'm going to pull a, uh, I guess on tap, but you see the reference there. Anyhow, Paul Wallace is here from Austin, Texas with a question. The new Shure MVX2U XLR to USB-C microphone converter has up to plus 60 dB gain to amplify signals for microphones such as the SM7B. Wonder how these types of mics would sound when hooked up to USB. Shure MV7 only has 36 dB of gain. Alexander Knight, start us off here. Yeah, I mean, sure makes good products. I haven't tested this one yet because it's uh, a very new product. But historically in the past when I've tested a lot of these XLR to USB adapters, they have not been that fantastic as far as the preamp quality and conversion are. So 60 dB of gain, that is good. Um, It's an interesting thing, you know, as technology over the last few years has become more and more miniaturized. They're able to get uh, actually pretty good little preamplifiers in these types of devices. I mean, you just look at a lot of these little inline preamps um, from Cloudlifter and SE Electronics now has one as well. So I'll have to test and see how that goes. As far as how it sounds, um, that remains to be seen. Um, I guess we'll just have to wait and see and I guess I'll have to order one and test it out and report back to you, Paul. You said remains to be seen, and maybe it remains to be heard. <laughs> we'll see what it sounds like, which is the bottom line for those things. <laughs> and I love it. Mitchell Hill. I agree with Alex. I think that uh, uh, the whole idea of uh, uh, of having the device, it's a great idea. It's just way too much jammed into a tiny little device with volume controls, and it's got those kind of ginchy volume control uh, adjustments on it, which scare me because they tend to get dirty and noisy. But uh, my only question, I, I'd say, why don't they just manufacture the MV7 with a few more dB of uh, gain and so we don't have to use these external boxes like the Cloudlifter or Dynamite or this thing? Um, I, I just don't see the point of it. Engineering, I guess, at some point. Alexander, you had a follow-up? Yeah, a couple other things now that I look at the product description and the price. It looks a little expensive for what it is. I'm seeing $130. I don't know if that is U.S. dollars or Canadian dollars on the Sure website. The other thing, too, the interesting feature is the automatic mic gain level thing. Uh, you can actually get that. There's There are a bunch of interfaces that now do this. The new Focusrite Vocaster products do this. The Audient Evo is another good quality audio interface with pretty good preamps that will just listen to your voice for you know 10 to 15 seconds and set your levels appropriately so there, there are other devices that actually give you more features more inputs um, on it plus loop back and all that stuff so i'm not sure at that price point i would want just a little dongle like that mitchell you want to come back in yeah I, i'm glad you brought that uh, auto agc whatever it is that's on that uh, device Anytime I see that on anything, a camera or a uh, external little box or something, I uh, definitely uh, disable it because I've never heard one that sounds good in those applications. 
Yeah, plus most of us have been burned from the early days of those circuits when they came out, and they were really great at automatically ac- uh, amplifying background. He is probably better at that than they were at amplifying the voice involved. So uh, hopefully that helps you, Paul. Let's move to next question. From Mike Edwards in Brooklyn, New York. Morning, everyone. For the wake, uh, excuse me, Wacom One, can the panel recommend a matte paper-like feel screen protector? All the ones I found have terrible reviews. Thanks. Jason, have you found one? Mm, kind of. So the very best that I've ever used is, is for an iPad, but you can get it in the right size. So the, the paper feel is the way to go here. And you just need to figure out the size of your Wacom One and just, you know, try this one accordingly. Usually for the Wacom's, you um, you can actually change out the the tip and you get like a little spring on the nib and that, that also gives you a little bit more of uh, of drag. It just oh, sounds, that's or great. feels better, yeah. Yeah, that sounds like a really good thing. I know the feel of drawing tools for people who are artists is often very important to them, so it's great that there are some options in that area. Next question. From Douglas Carmichael, I know we've talked about the Melee and the other Intel-based mini PCs, but would there be any preferences advantage to a Ryzen-based mini PC like one of these? And pointing to a link to AMD. Alexander. You know, there definitely would be some advantages. It all comes down to this. What is, You have to ask yourself, what are you going to be using this for and what can you tolerate? There are a variety of manufacturers that have little computers like this that have faster AMD processors with more cores. The trade-off is they tend to be much thicker bricks as far as the size, and then they also have active cooling. So if you're If you want something that's actually silent, you're going to need something that's lower power, that's not going to be as fast. Um, So again, it all comes down to what are you going to be doing on that computer? So you got to think about that. Jason? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, performance per watt, when when you look at these kinds of systems, it's when you get into ultra low performance, I think Intel still has it. But um, when you're actually wanting to do video, for example, I would take Ryzen over just about anything. There you go. Hopefully that helps. Douglas, next question. Mark Giuliani from Washington, D.C. has this to say. When using Broadboard with a wake, I'm going to get it, Wacom Cintiq (laughs) for marketing up, marketing, for marking up drawings on Zoom, do you use an upstream or a downstream key on an ATEM? Computer 1 is running the ATEM, 2 is running Broadboard, 3 is running the drawing software. So that's one of those conditional questions that everybody who gets into doing keying has to, uh, you know, this is where where the key gets looped into your signal flow. Upstream keys tend to happen before things get into um, a mixer or a graphics processor or whatever. So you're keying it before it gets into the general production cycle. Downstream keys just happen later in that cycle so that it's right before output. Um, I think this idea came from news operations and, you know, it's it's multiple levels of being able to overlay a signal. Does that overlay relate to everything everybody sees or do you want to hold off and not overlay the content until it gets at the back end? that allows the main show signal to be sent out for maybe a different key somewhere else. So I'm not, I don't think you can say that one is better than the other or superior to the other. They're all just use cases. Jason, your thoughts? 
There are lots of ways to do this. If you're talking about the way that Alex does a Telestrator, I believe he uses the Luma keyer and then just uses black on white and it, it essentially is using a mat. And at that point, once you have the Luma key, it, you simply choose the system color and that will be overlaid as the downstream key. So I would try Luma instead of a, a chroma key. And of course, Bill is right. If it's behind you, then it's downstream and, um, or I'm sorry, upstream. Now I'm going to mess that up. And if it's in front of you, like a lower third, it's downstream. Well, it's kind of like, when are you going to mix the paint? When are you going to take the yellow and the blue and you're going to make green? Once you do that, you can't get it out. So if you use an upstream key uh, and you do something to overlay, nobody from that point on can get it out of there. Uh, if you hold off and you maintain the two colors and don't mix them until the very end, somebody who wants access to the to the primary color that you've mixed in. Somebody wants to get the yellow clean, can still do it. It's not mixed together. So that's kind of a metaphor for how I think about when you mix a signal and make it one thing instead of the two primary components. Do you want to come back in, Jason, or did I just see a flash for no reason? No, 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 no. you okay. nailed it. Okay, fair enough. Let's move on to the next question. Douglas Carmichael wants to know, two brands have already suspended advertising on X when their ads ran on an account promoting extremist views. With brand safety under threat, do you think X has a future as a platform? Alexander's going to weigh in on this first. Alexander? I don't know what the, the two brands were, but I tend to remain cautiously optimistic. I mean, I, I don't really like to talk in absolutes, and, and, and it's, it's difficult to say exactly what's going to happen with the platform. So, um, you know, it doesn't mean that Twitter or X has a future. I got to get used to that. Now, I don't know. Um, Twitter's had a problem for years with this stuff. Um, and obviously, Elon Musk is uh, highly divisive as far as like wh what people think about him. So I'm just going to sit back and just watch what happens. But he's he's a pretty intelligent guy. So it should be interesting to see what happens in the next 12 months. Yeah, this isn't a new question. Even back in the days that I was starting out in broadcasting, I, when I was first doing ad work on radio shows and had a radio show, um, it, there were standing orders from some things that surprised me when I first saw them. For example, every airline advertiser we had, and we had advertising from the big airlines, had a standing kind of uh, disclaimer at the bottom of, say, in the event of an air crash anywhere on the planet that makes news, do not read this spot. Just take it out of the lineup. They didn't want to be adjacent to anything negative about their industry. And that, that kind of practice is still out there. There are tremendous numbers of commercial advertisers. Uh, and remember that, that advertising is often an inverted pyramid. The production and everything is a small part. The time buy is where the majority of the money gets spent to just get that in front of eyeballs. So they're very risk averse because of this huge pyramid of money that is resting on the little tip of the creative. Um, it is not unusual for people to say, I do not want my ads adjacent to anything that could be taken as negative. Now, recently, there has been a little trend differently. I mean, as we become a more polarized society, you will see advertisers who say, yes, I want to go into that market on the far side over here, or I want to go into the market on the far side over there. And they are happy to embrace 
these divisive things, thinking that there's a niche market there that they can market into. But it's it's not accidental. These are all well planned out and they are part of advertising strategies these days. Jason, you want to make some more comments? Yeah, of course, advertising is a confidence game. And anytime you have something where, where, where the pervasive idea of something is, you'll end up with daredevils on the other side who are like, really? Oh, okay. I, I, I think we should just see if we can get that edge because there's such an incentive to cheat almost, right? And, and go against the culture and, and create some sort of counterculture movement. As far as X is concerned, my, my first question is, if you tweeted on Twitter, what do you do on X? Do you do you exclaim? Like that that was the best I could come up with. I'm sure someone's answered that up, but I, I actually, I don't know. Um, Mitch, do you know? Mitch, you want to weigh in on this? I, you know, it was interesting. You brought up radio. I mean, back in the day when I was a young uh, radio child, um, we had to deal with things called adjacencies, and that meant that you couldn't run two car dealer spots uh, back to back. And it wasn't sophisticated back there to tell you that you didn't put, run these carts. You had to make those uh, decisions basically right on the spot. And the same thing had to do with uh, certain shows that are on on the radio and certainly on television that the advertiser needs to be aware of what the content is so that they can make decisions like uh, like you said about an airline uh, dealing with a uh, unfortunate accident or other things but um some advertisers pay a premium to keep uh, certain adjacencies which are related to where where commercials run on the same page for example versus uh, the actual content which is just a matter of whoever the buyer was uh, making the decisions of where those spots ran um, should have enough information about the programs to uh, uh, to deal with those kind of situations because that association sometimes bleeds over into the product. Alexander, you had a follow-up? You know, I, I, I wish... If I had a nickel for every time somebody wrote an article about these one of these platforms like Facebook, Twitter being doomed, I mean, I would be rich by now. I mean, it's just you could look back the last five years and yet these platforms still continue to be around. And it's interesting. It's, it makes me think about a common complaint that I also hear about from users of Twitter or X uh, that, you know, they constantly complain that, oh, it's just a cesspool. It's full of all this stuff. I never I don't understand that because my Twitter timeline, my feed is highly curated. So perhaps is this maybe just a misunderstanding about do people know how to use this service properly? Because it's never been an issue for me. Of course not. And and I think in part, and I say that only because I'm not being facetious, none of us, when we first started going online in social media, understood really the back end very well. And, you know, it took a lot of learning to understand that if you start, here's a perfect example. A friend of mine was getting married at one point, maybe 20 years ago. So I clicked on some things looking for a wedding gift. And the next thing you know, my feed started getting full of wedding related stuff. Now, I'm not getting married. This is going to be a transient moment in my life where I'm looking for a gift for a friend and then I don't really care about it. The algorithms were going, oh, wedding stuff. He likes wedding stuff. And they started feeding me wedding stuff. And for six months, I couldn't get that stuff out of my feed. Not that it was horrible, but I just didn't understand what was happening in the background. I think we're much more aware of that now, but probably nowhere near 
aware of the sophistication that this targeting still keeps evolving to. And um, it, it's something, boy, I almost wish they would get rid of some of those old classes in high schools and just start talking search awareness, branding awareness, and these things that really do determine in some cases the nature of the feeds that you are giving based on your previous behavior. Jason, you had some more thoughts? Yeah, critical thinking, citing your source, you know, figuring out fact from fiction, from opinion, from, um, yeah, of course, and absolutely. But my thought about this is that you can really count on one hand the number of actual platforms on the internet whose purpose is to display ads. And Twitter slash X is absolutely one of them. And if you are a brand and deciding in the, in the spur of the moment or appearing to, you know, to, not, to not advertise at the spur of the moment, you are also making a political decision, right? You are also deciding what your brand should be by not being on X. So, I, you know, I don't think any of this is doomed. And I, I don't really think they think about brand safety. It's, it's, that's the wrong way to think about it. It's more like they're averse to brand tarnishment, which sounds like the same thing, but it's not. I, I agree with that. I will also say that part of it is the drive-by-the-car wreck syndrome, right? We all do it. You drive by a car wreck, you look at the car wreck. Well, if there's an algorithm saying, give people more of what they look at the most, does that mean you want more car wrecks? Probably not. And yet... That's the connection. What causes people to look at my stuff? The car wreck is what people look at a lot. So let's do something more like a car wreck. Well, that's flawed logic, but it's simple logic that sometimes these algorithms seem to mimic. Uh, let's do one more question. Question. Vincent question. Alvarez from Bellingham, Washington. Is there a way to make a portable Bluetooth speaker act as a PA, a public address amplifier, I'm thinking, utilizing a phone for the microphone, not for production, but for a 4-H group activity so simplicity and cost is a factor? Mitchell Hill. I can't tell you how many times that somebody will ask me in a group they just did here at our uh, condo, that uh, could they do exactly the same thing? Well, first of all, a uh, an iPhone microphone is not a good choice for a PA where you've got something turned up to a certain volume because it's going to feed back or it's just going to sound bad. So uh, there's a problem right there. The other thing is these little speakers, these Bluetooth speakers aren't meant to fill a room up with sound unless you buy multiple Bluetooth speakers and spread them all over the place. And that's really not a very cost effective. My suggestion is to buy a PA. And there's a plenty, uh, there's plenty of them out there. Bose makes a nice uh, round of them uh, where you can uh, just bring the one speaker in and it's got the inputs and it might have a Bluetooth input. Uh, those are probably are better because they're designed to project sound out into a crowd of people. And uh, to use the 4-H uh, reference, it's like trying to get a goat to do a cow's job. <laughs> Cheese milk, check, check. But, but yeah, let's go to Alexander Knight. Unless you're going to be using the PA system every single day, the ROI is probably not going to be there. I would suggest renting a PA. I get this all the time. As somebody who works at a, <clears throat> excuse me, at a company that rents this kind of stuff, I've had people, you know, just to try to save money, they say, you know, I've got this little Beats pillbox speaker that does Bluetooth. Can I plug a, a SM58 into it? Just rent the speaker. <laughs> Jason. 
Okay, I, I'm, I'm still stuck on the goat doing the cow's job. That, <laughs> that was great. Metaphor okay. of the day. Uh, I will answer the question. Now, understand, this is a terrible idea. And like, I think, I think um, Vincent, you already know that by now, but I'll answer. Yes, there is a way to do this. You can get a free app for the iPhone called Megaphone, whose only purpose is to do this. I will say again, if anyone gets a phone call, it's going to interrupt and the microphone's going to get real weird and it's not going to come back. If you get a text from your mother, it's going to like you're going to get the notifications. This is a terrible idea. But if you want it, there it is. Megaphone for free on the App Store. <laughs> I didn't know that existed and I'm kind of glad I didn't. <laughs> okay, stop. Stop. Let's. Uh, oh, I know what I have to say, which is that we are always excited to see your questions in the system. Uh, that is what runs Office Hours Q and A system. So uh, this is a great time to put your questions in. And once you do, once you navigate to Mukana, our question system, uh, you can get those links on our basic website. Then your votes become incredibly important because, as always, we try to get to the highest voted questions first and spend the most time dealing with them. So don't only put your questions in, but take a moment when you do that to vote on everybody else's questions and decide how we kind of navigate our way through the question and answer system here on the show. Next question. From Alexander Knight in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and here on our panel uh, asking, I've heard some people complain they don't like Dolby Vision because it makes their TV look too dark. I've calibrated my TV and only watch in complete darkness, and some content can look a little dark. Have we gone too far with dynamic range? Mitchell, what are your thoughts? I started thinking about this more and more when uh, the end of Game of Thrones came out because it was notoriously dark for most people where if you had a proper cinematic setup on your uh, on your TV it probably would look better and as uh, uh, Alexander says you have to listen or watch in a uh, the right conditions with the curtains drawn and the and the uh, the TV set at the pr appropriate levels but it, there's another side issue to this and that is that um, TVs allow allow all kinds of processing now like I've got a Sony TV that has a computer built into it to make those adjustments automatically depending upon the surrounding sound or uh, light level that's the leaking into the room so my question is 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 it for everything is it not just dolby vision but is it for hdr is it for all kinds of other applications it's messing with uh maybe the director had a different uh, image maybe just wanted it to be dark um jason well, first, I want to hear from Alexander. Is it? Yeah, I, I, I want to hear what um, I want to hear what Mitchell's uh, the answer to those questions. Is it only Dolby Vision? If it is, then I think I may have some insight. If, is it you know, or, or does you know, does HDR ten or does video game like are are you are you, is this only when you lock into Dolby Vision? Yeah, uh, you know. It, it is definitely because of the way I've got my Apple TV set up, I've got it set up so that uh, on the Apple TV home screen, it's not it's, it's just running, you know, 444, just standard, uh, no, no HDR. But when it it'll automatically switch into an HDR or Dolby Vision if it detects it. And when it goes into that mode, depending on the program content, depending on the scene, some scenes can look 
really, really dark. Now, I thought, is it just the streaming service? No. I actually have a 4K Blu-ray player that does Dolby Vision, and I test those as well. And for even for some of that content, it's a little dark. So I've calibrated my TV according to Artings, and, and they actually recommend the, the backlight go all the way down, like really, really low. So with the Artings calibration, it's really dark. So I think you might be doubling up on this. One thing to know about Dolby Vision specifically is that in order for a manufacturer to be certified to to call their, you know, Dolby Vision switch, that that is pre-programmed in and it turns off brightness, backlight, contrast, clarity, because all of those things are, the idea is don't let the user get in their own way. And and it actually shuts off a lot of the stuff, true motion, um, it, 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 yeah, it'll be just completely turned off. So to that end, I would, I would actually try, if you can, reset the TV. I mean, reset it and try it, only Dolby Vision with that setup and see if, um, and see if that actually makes it better. It might. It may also still be too dark because, you know, the manufacturer kind of adhered to something and, and you know, also possibly a firmware update. There are many a time when um, I had an issue, and keep in mind, I never let my TV touch the Internet, but um, you can always get a USB stick and, and check for a firmware update and then do it offline. Sometimes if it's a weird thing, like, you know, you're not the only one experiencing, you can end up with, yeah, with a firmware update that'll fix it. Yeah, I agree with everybody's been saying this is a complex and increasingly complex thing. TVs now often have ambient light sensors, and I always thought, you know, what happens if it just gets dusty or something like that? Is it, is it reading the same way? There's just so many variables now. Um, I wish you good luck, Alexander, in trying to get this perfect. And, and I think Jason's got a good point. At some point, I've gotten systems that have gotten so complex that the only thing I could do is get them back to zero and kind of rebuild from the start because it just had too many adjustments in too many different places. Your mileage may vary. Next question. Scott Gorman from Sydney, Australia asks, I'm producing a live event with landscape and portrait or vertical orientation using Restream. Is there any other platform which will Restream to Instagram and TikTok at the same time for a vertical orientation? Jason. Okay, see, I thought I had it, and then you got me with the simultaneous. I'm going to go with no one simultaneously. Uh, Yellow Duck is, is the industry standard way of doing this for Instagram. I think it is specific only to Instagram. So you are going to have to broadcast and then rebroadcast. And if that's too complicated, I'll remind you that you can always get an output from Restream and plug it back in to, um, to Yellow Duck. Yes, you're breaking Instagram terms of service, and that is really the only way to do it. I didn't even know you could broadcast to TikTok on Restream. So there you have it. There you go. Hopefully that helps. Next question. Roscoe Jones from Madison, Indiana, is in with a question. Is Nearline as a term for the storage of media files useful? Online is immediately accessible. Offline archive is not immediately accessible or in storage. What is the modern version of Nearline? 
Well, this is interesting. We've talked a little bit here on Office Hours about distribution of content, particularly globally and things like that. And I think this may be one of the terms that kind of comes into play when you're discussing that sort of thing. Uh, we also talk, uh, Alex has talked at length about warming the edge of distribution systems. So the file's going to originally be hosted at one place, and let's, for the sake of the discussion, say that's in New York. Clearly, it has to get out to all the rest of the cities in the United States. I mean, something in New Jersey, that's pretty close. Los Angeles is much farther, but it also has to get out globally. So it's going to be distributing to London and Bangalore and who knows who, where else. If you just have the central files on in that original place, it takes a lot of passing along to get out there. The other option is to get it downloaded to the device itself, and that would be Nearline on, you know, that's really close to where the people are actually trying to access it, access it. But there has to be intermediate stages in there where those edge servers get the material from other intermediate steps. And I think this is where these this language is really useful. When you're talking about distributed storage, having multiple areas of servers that can take popular content store and forward it then to the next one makes the whole system kind of work better. That's my understanding, at least. Jason? I think of Nearline like an interlibrary loan. So, you know, you go to a library and they say, yeah, we can get you the book or, or a back order. Essentially, it is the length of time of sync interval one, meaning let's say, you know, sync interval one is one minute. This device, every minute, checks for new files. Sync interval two is two minutes. This one checks the other one for um, for the same sync back. So to me, the total longest time that those two are going to take between a hit is three minutes. And that's how I think of Nearline. iCloud is also a pretty good adjacent here. It's, you know, optimize for on-disk storage really means we're going to be doing stuff in the back end and we're going to give you a really quick, uh, low-resolution version of a picture. But you'll see this if you turn on, for example, in photos, optimize for storage, you'll get a low, low end and then it'll just all of a sudden click up and um, you get full resolution. That to me is, is what Nearline means. Yeah, there's also just demand curves are really got to be complicated. And I was mentioning before when we were talking pre-show about a show my wife and I are enjoying called Fisk that came out of Australia. So the Australian broadcasting system uh, has created it. Now, clearly, that's going to originate offshore from the U.S. there. But now that it's on Netflix and now that it appears to be very popular... It's got to move out toward those edges real fast because as soon as it hits the front page of a service like Netflix in a giant market like the United States, the demand for that content is just going to skyrocket from where it was when it was just a local show in Australia. So managing all of this through the process is something where this storage topology, for lack of a better uh, word, is very important. And I'm sure the network engineers are really paying attention to this every minute of every day, trying to figure out who needs what, where, and where do you store it in this whole system. Let's go to the next question. From Darius in Half Moon Bay, California, my wife was at a conference where they used Catchbox as a passable mic. It was compelling and usable, and it seems it supports Dante, but is it a quality system? There's a link to Jason, it. have you ever been, ever been in a in a throwing match mm. with uh, Catchbox? Okay, Alex has opined on this one a few times. Catchbox is a very clever idea. Here's, here's, here's the long and the short of it. Um, it's using Wi-Fi 
uh, band. So, uh, you know, that's where the 100 meter, you know, 330 foot wireless range comes in. And it's basically just a foam box with a microphone in it. And the idea is um, almost like a talking stick, right? I'm going to throw you the talking stick, but it also doubles as a microphone. And I'm guessing they've got accelerometers in there whose purpose is to make sure that the, the whoomp, that when you catch it, doesn't, you know, doesn't show up. Um, I'm guessing for... $1,149, you can probably do better, but it, it, is, it is an extremely compelling idea. And I don't, I don't think it's a terrible microphone. Uh, keep in mind, you, you need a host who can throw something and you need an audience member that can catch it. There's a big gotcha there. You might want to just get some, some PAs who can run the mics out to people who have questions. That's, that's the traditional way to do this. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this is interesting to me. This all comes from the inverse square principle. We talk about so much about microphones, right? To increase signal to noise ratio, to get a better quality sound, the number one way you do that is getting the microphone close to the mouth of the person speaking. And in an audience circumstance, that's very difficult. So putting something up at the ceiling, putting shotguns around or things like that will never be as present and clear and articulate as getting a microphone to the person speaking and having them hold it in front of their mouth. This is a clever way to do this. It is kind of, I think, used correctly. It's kind of fun. You've got a game of catch going on in your audience. So for lighthearted, uh, enjoyable conflabs, that's probably good. I wouldn't do this if you were, you know, at a at a funeral and you wanted to talk to the people in the big funeral audience. It just doesn't doesn't seem to be appropriate for that kind of thing. But I'm saying it does add a little bit of of gamification to your meeting. Uh, Mitchell, you had a thought? Yeah, if you're going to go that route, uh, I suggest the Mr. Microphone. We all have one somewhere in our closet. <laughs> yeah, the 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 technology, the, the the idea behind it is a very solid idea. How you execute it, that's up to you. Next question. John Fisher from Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, has a question. I'm showing up with red skin tones in Zoom. Cameras are auto white balancing, and I've tried various color temps from the lights. Any recommended troubleshooting tips for getting lighting right? I just get some patches for the shirts to say Mars Bowling Team, and they'll just think you're from another planet. Go ahead, Alexander. Well, John, it would be nice to know what camera you have. Generally, the way I approach things is I turn all of that automatic stuff off, maybe with the exception of an autofocus. So uh, starting with the lighting, if they're bicolor panels, I would start at maybe 5,600 Kelvin and go from there with your camera. Set, uh, turn off the auto white balance if you can. I don't know if you got a webcam or if you got a mirrorless camera or something like that. But uh, set the white balance uh, to a fixed value. I, I set mine to 5,600 on my camera to match my lights as well. Uh, set the aperture value and everything else manually and get it to look right uh, as that's a pretty good starting place uh, for me. And if, uh, if you do know the camera that you got there, feel free to send me a message on Discord. We, maybe we can work through it. Jason. Let's talk about white balance. White balance is not white balance. White balance, when a camera says white balance, what it's actually referring to is neutral gray. Neutral gray is black at 50% saturation. So, you know, a, a lot of us have chip charts or, you know, things like this. This is two-thirds neutral gray, which means black at 66.6% um, 
Um, this is neutral gray. This is a product called a Y-Bal and um, WHI, yeah, WHIBAL, and it's kind of in my wallet at all times. And what it is is a non-reflective perfectly black, non-reflective, perfectly white. And these are individually color calibrated, which is how they justify the fact that they probably cost, I don't know, 30, 35 bucks for a tiny little one. But down to the nanometer, it actually shows in the back the, the temperature of the gray. And in turn, you can calculate the temperature of the white. White balance is one of the few things that should almost never be automated because it's almost never delightful. What it's going to do is average the entire thing and try to figure out, you know, from there what what white is. And Mitch is holding up the other really great thing that you can be using, which is a chip chart. A chip chart is a very, very handy way to get the sense of um, that you've got neutral gray, the large neutral gray, and then in one-sixth stop increments between pure white and pure black on the side. On the other side, I don't remember exactly how these are calculated, but it, it shows... It shows a whole bunch about, um, yeah, yeah. About I'll leave mixes that alone. of primary colors and things like that. And, you know, it's trying to figure out the RGB values of everything. These tools are very useful. And as you get more and more sophisticated, um, these tools make sense. They are consistent. And the, the, one of the reasons they cost a lot generally is they're very consistent in terms of the production of them so that they don't vary much at all. The thing that always drives me nuts is that if you're not going to do what Jason recommended very highly, and I support him in that, which is turn off any auto color balancing in your camera, you'll change your lighting. Like So let's say you have a variable light that can go between daylight and tungsten, which is typical, and you decide I need to warm it up a little. Well, if your camera is set on auto white balance, it's just going to adjust and put it right back where it was before. So you end up making all these changes thinking I'm going to warm it up or I'm going to cool it up, and you look back and nothing has changed. Well, that's because you're fighting the camera trying to turn it the way it thinks that midpoint should be, no matter how you adjust it. And it's very frustrating to do it that way. So turning the auto off is very important. Mitchell, you had another thought? Yeah, I think my recommendation, at least what I do when I do a run and gun shoot, is only turn it on when you're walking into a building from the outside or vice versa. Yeah, that's one of the difficult things because then you're typically going from uh, 5,600, 6,000, 7,000, who knows how, how intense the sunlight is outside into something that's lit with some form of artificially generated light, whether that's the old style tungsten. There's less and less tungsten out there because it's very energy inefficient, but it might be anything from god-awful halide uh, with a terrible uh, spike in the color profile to fluorescence, which can also be spiky in different colors. So it, it's very difficult. So Mitch's suggestion, which is if you have to move from outside to inside and you don't know what you're faced, that's the good place for auto white balance to let your camera try to figure it out. The best cameras will let you switch in there. The camera's intelligence will try to figure out what is neutral. And then you can freeze that so that if you move into some other area, it doesn't rebalance and constantly chase it with an auto control, which is what I was talking about. Auto changes, constant changes, constant trying to chase it is a nightmare in post because the poor editor 
has to go in and color correct every change that the camera sensed when that tungsten light on the manager's desk came in and the white balance shifted because it's trying to average and everything goes out of whack and you're trying to fix it. That is a nightmare. So as consistent as you can be is really good for your editing friends. Let's go to the next question. From Douglas Carmichael, with the availability of distributors like DistroKid, do you think traditional legacy music labels still have their place? You know, distribution is a whole different thing. Everybody knows that it's different now, but that doesn't mean that the record companies, the movie studios, and the rest of that still aren't at nexus points. They have distribution networks. They have people who are experienced and how to do it. Uh, I spend a good little bit of time dealing with distribution networks because as somebody who feeds into the broadcast system, I have to feed into the web. I have to feed into all sorts of different endpoints with the work that I do. It can be very difficult, and so sometimes the systems that are in place from the legacy users are a little bit annoying to have to work with, but once you do, at least you know that if I send my work to eh, random, NBC, um, and I get it through the first color requirements and luminance requirements and signal requirements of that NBC affiliate, the rest of the NBC network will look at that and go, yeah, it's fine. That's that's what we're looking for. Um, it's it's more complicated and more difficult, I think, than it's ever been before. Although some things like the fact that people are watching mostly on devices, particularly Apple devices are very popular out there. So are the Samsung devices and things like that. There are now less, there's less um, variability in the desktop space, I would argue, than there was in the broadcast space where every broadcaster could change it around. Jason, you have some thoughts? Oh boy, you gotta love um, you gotta love hyperbolic uh, statements like the one on DistroKid's website. Be prolific. What this actually is, I'm looking more carefully into it, is is almost like a finisher. It's as if these people have, have automated the metadata and how to put the things in the boxes so that you can get on to, you know, Spotify, iTunes, here, you know, here are all their logos, Deezer and YouTube. And it, it's because, you know, applying for these and then making sure you paste everything in every box can be a pain. Yeah, a label can do that. I would assume, I would hope that a label does a lot more than that. But, you know, of course, if you want a DIY approach, why stop there? I mean, you should probably be understanding these things that hopefully will be paying you in the future. So, yeah, it, it's it's probably a good time saver. And at the same time, maybe not ideal to not understand these things if you want to try to make a living in, in a digital landscape. I'm going to support what Jason said entirely. There are there are there are systems, uh, extreme reach. Uh, there are a couple of two or three more that do exactly this in the broadcast space. You send your tape or your your signal. You upload your digital file to them, and they will take care of all the transcoding necessary for all the local stations and the national stations or whatever. But they take a piece out of the middle. I mean, they're a middleman essentially. Uh, they are a a standards compliant organization that makes it easy. But anything that is made much easier, people will charge for. Uh, I have I, I enjoy trying to understand the back end of it, so I typically don't ever use those services. 
I want to go in there and figure out why this network is different than that network. And all of a sudden, here's a new thing in this over-the-top world we have in where I've got, to, I've got to send something to a local affiliate of Hulu and their standards are different than everybody else's. I kind of want to get in there and know why are they different, what have they done, and what are they distributing? Is that something that's I'm going to have to deal with more in the future or is that a flash in the pan? Those kinds of things. It's just This is complicated. Digital, the distribution of digital files is complicated. Let's go to the next question. Eric Herz from Hartford, Connecticut asked, as part of your live production kit, do you feel comfortable with command line tools like FFmpeg or do you prefer graphical tools like vMix? Jason? I've never used FFmpeg for anything other than transcoding. If it's capable of doing that, then that's news to me. I think, John, this is a perfect excuse. Can ChatGPT say, hey, I need the FFmpeg output for this, that, these, and those? It'll just spit out that paragraph of junk you need to I'll put in right the now. command? Oh, yeah. That, that's one of those perfect excuses because nobody can just rattle off exactly what you need for FFmpeg's encoders to work perfectly. I've, I've also never really thought of it as a live production tool. To me, it's more like compressor. Yeah, I do not speak command line. I've had to dive into that maybe 50 times in the cold course of my career, and I always go in with trepidation. If I have somebody like Jason, who I know is a programmer and understands it, I will copy code that he sends me and say thank you for uh, you know giving me a snippet that will get the thing reset to the way I want it. But I know I know my limitations, and that's one of them, so I don't do it. Let's go on to the next question. Talalik Lopez Waterman in Galesto, New Mexico asks, what's the best method to move data from an old Mac to a new one? Jason? Do you mean best or do you mean fastest? The fastest way to do it is to use that Apple migration utility that I'm not, I kid you not, I have never ever used. I saw it happen once and, and Photoshop didn't load on the new Mac and I'm like, nope, I'm done, never again. So the, the, to me, the best way to do it is, is um, the order of operation actually matters more than what you're doing. Start backing up on the old Mac and simply back up your user's files. You need some degree of specificity because you don't actually want to chunk the entire thing from, from one to the other. While you're doing that backup, make a list of all the applications that you're going to have to reinstall and um, then start your updates on the newer computer. Once everything in Mac OS is up to date, start the applications downloading. Once the applications are done, activate all the applications and start moving your user's files, which means desktop to desktop, documents to documents, music to music, etc., etc. Personally, I don't ever migrate settings in macOS because although it might work, you're going to end up with so much cruft if you do this even once, and especially if you're going from an M1 system to a not M1 system, you're going to get, end up with these superfluous files that you, you will never see, but will just slow down your indexing, that to me, it's almost always worth doing this by hand. So I have this test, and it's called the Do You Dust Test. <laughs> Here's what I mean by that. In housekeeping, for your personal life, I know people who religiously dust twice a week. I know people who don't dust every month. I know people who don't dust until the year goes by, and then they usually hire a crew to come in and dust. Your level of comfort in doing the, the incremental maintenance between things has a lot to do with this for me. 
I don't not I do not like the dusting thing. I I know it's necessary and I try to be reasonably regular and I like to come into the middle of this. But uh, with the Apple system that I use, I use Migration Assistant for incremental upgrades. I leave that on unless I'm in the middle of a high, pro, high uh, uh, cri- not crisis, but a highly important project. And I don't want anything to change until I get that project finished. But for me, the Apple Migration Assistant process for a dot point upgrade has been fine. I haven't had a problem with it. It keeps things going and it's not an issue. If it's a major operating system, I wholeheartedly agree with Jason. You've got to burn down your old stuff because there's so much cruft, and cruft is the word I use for it too. So much old code in there that just needs to get taken out of there. So you've got to rebuild from the ground floor. So I'm somewhere in that midpoint. I'm not an obsessive, I'm going to keep everything up manually. I'm not an obsessive, I'm going to ignore it all and and watch my system get slower and slower over the course of the year because I haven't changed or updated anything. Um, you got to figure out where you fit in that. Jason, you want to come back in? Well, yeah. So I'm with you as far as in-place upgrades are concerned. Uh, Tlaloc is actually asking how to cut chunk from old Mac to new Mac. You know, do you use the migration utility when you get a new laptop to move from your old laptop top tier new one. Uh, you know, as far as iterating Mac OS, you know, Sonoma will be coming out in about a month. And, um, you know, a lot of people will be doing an in-place upgrade versus a, a clean load. Um, to me, this depends depends heavily on the operating system. Historically, it's been very rocky and you, you do want to do a clean load. Um, but I, I feel like they're starting to get better at that since they've been on their own hardware. They are. Now, clearly, if you're making a giant upgrade, if you've been on Intel processors and you're moving to the new M-series processors, that's a great time to flush everything, rebuild, because there's brand new code, uh, brand new APIs, brand new everything in the the core of the system. So get rid of the old. (laughs) I I went looking for 32-bit programs, and I had like 150 of them. (laughs) It was like, okay, that stuff's gone. It's time to get rid of it. So you have to be a little bit intelligent to that. But I do have more confidence in the upgrade systems, um, at least on Apple's side that I've used, than I used to. So and, yeah, pick your poison. Let's go to the next question. Roscoe Jones from Madison, Indiana wants to know, are there good used servers to be found on eBay because businesses change them out every couple of years? This would be for archiving and not for online access. So the latest, greatest speed is not impossible or important. Jason. Um, I, I had to read this and then, you know, withdraw my hand and then read it again to be sure that I understood this. I would never use a server for this. When it comes to archiving, a NAS is what you need. You actually need a dumber system with fewer open doors to be able to do that kind of snapshotting. You want a limited scope with a limited attack vector and you know a cron job capability. Synology NASs do this really, really well. And the new, uh, what is it, 7, 7.2 or 7.3 will allow this, this version of, of snapshotting that is almost transparently instant, meaning if there is a change, this is how time machine works. If there's a change, it will recognize that change and it won't actually increase the number, the amount of space used in the snapshot unless there's a noticeable change. Now that carries with it some issues. If you crash the NAS, good luck recovering it. That said, it, it ends up being 
really, really efficient and much less of a pain to deal with than an ancillary server. Mitchell? Uh, Jason makes a good point, but any device that you buy off of eBay because the price seems too good to be true is going to be too good to be true. I generally, what I like to do if I'm looking for a server or another uh, big ticket item that started out as a big ticket item is go to the manufacturer's website and you'll find, like, for example, I do it with HP a lot. Um, they have remanufactured devices. And what's unique about that is you know what you're getting and you're getting a warranty from the manufacturer. You may pay a little bit more but you're going to be guaranteed that that product is actually going to be in working order and it's not going to be dead on arrival. Um, even Apple has a refurbished site. If you go looking for it, it's not bad. It's got some good prices on some uh, used Apple product that's been uh, scrutinized by the Apple boffins to make it better. Absolutely. Mitch. Oh, that was, that was Mitchell. Never mind. Um, let's go to the next question. And the next one's from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Yesterday, we discussed the Descript Town Hall on Office Hours. Round two is today at 11 a.m. Pacific Time. What to expect? Will you watch? Mitchell, will you watch? Um, I might watch it. I'm not terribly interested in the subject. But um, regarding the uh, the flub that happened, I, I mean, look, we're in the business of producing live events all the time, and things happen. And I don't watch events, nor do I go to NASCAR to see an accident. So um, I think I would give them the benefit of the doubt. And the information they did in the first one, even though it was flawed, still is there. Yeah, you know, we talk about it a good little bit because that's part of what we have to do to do our jobs. We want to know what can go wrong, what kinds of things uh, do we have to watch out for in our own programs. And when something doesn't work right, I think, I, I, I don't know about anybody else, I can only speak for myself. It's that combination of concern and sympathy, yet... Oh my gosh, this is something, do I need to watch out for that? Can I learn something from what went wrong with these folks? As hard as I know they were working to, to put out a good show, and as, you know, we've been behind the scenes, we've been backstage when things don't go well. And I think all of us who do these kinds of shows or participate in any level on them go, ah, that must have been really tough. But it's a learning experience, too, for everybody. So it, it's important to pay attention to. And that's why we talk about them a lot here on Office Hours. This is a learning environment. And, you know, you don't always learn about how to take care of your car if everything is just working smoothly and nothing fa fails. It's when something goes wrong that you can maybe say, ah, it went wrong because of these three predicates. Let me start watching out for those. Let's get to the next question. Stefan Fischer from Würzburg, Germany. Getting things in order is always a thing. How do you get all your tiny bits and pieces sorted in some system of boxes? I look for a system that allows me to take the complete box with me compared to packing things for each event. What a good question, Stefan. Uh, Jason, how do you approach the oh thingification <laughs> of our businesses? There goes the hour. Um, there are so many ways to do this. Uh, for really, really small things, I'll start from small and get to big. For, for really, really small to like, you know, to me, it's about your fist. If it's bigger than your fist, you need to address it differently. If it's smaller than your fist, I actually buy, and they're incredibly inexpensive, prescription medication bottles because they're mostly, they're not, you know, completely airtight. Um, they're not waterproof, but 
you know, they're readily available. They're incredibly inexpensive and you can get them from the size of, I am kid you not, like your pinky all the way up to like, you know, mason jar size. And, um, you know, they're enough of a commodity that they're, they're easy to source. When it comes to getting everything in one place, DeWalt has a stacking set of, you know, drawers and little bin things. And um, they then in turn make a really heavy cart that will allow you to stack that as tall as you are, you know, whatever, four inches at a time. And um, you can label everything. And they connect with these neat little things that really do just let it stack on top of itself. You can also just take them off, um, get a handle on the top and, you know, carry in six or so. Without the wheels, here's the drawback. It's really hard to move something that's four feet tall and, you know, completely center weighted. Mitchell? I think you can tell too much about somebody on the way how they uh, handle this situation. Um, In my case, I still have a pile of gear that I haven't installed from two years ago when I built this Zoom room. And it's just a hodgepodge of stuff. I did buy a Sidio uh, box case, uh, case that they uh, they make. If you go to Sidio.com, I believe that's where they are. Um, they have all kinds of uh, ways to section each uh and, it, and they stack like those postal service uh, boxes do. But, um, yeah, putting things into neat, tidy uh, uh, configurations um, is just very tedious to me. If I ever have way too much time on my hands and I want to do something that's silly and fun, I'm going to probably write a little book called Kidification. Because I find more and more as I go through life, the struggle to figure out, okay, I'm holding up this connector thing. Oh, that one's easy because it goes with that camera. So I need to put it in that camera's kit and I need to find a way to store it with that camera because that's all it's good for. Then you get the things on the other side, which is this is just an XLR cable. It can attach to 35 different devices and do me some good. So it needs to probably be in its own grouping of XLR cables. And then you get the things in the middle, which drive me really nuts, which is that it's a thing that came along into my life at some point. I used it with this device, but it turned out to be equally good for a bunch of other devices, and I don't really know where to keep it. Um, you know, a splitter, uh, uh, 3.5 millimeter, four connector, uh, Sony video and audio cables. I found I could use it for the camcorder it came with, but there was 10 other things I bought later in my career that it fit in and broke out audio and stereo, uh, stereo audio and video just fine. And I'm going, where do I put, I've only got one of these, but it goes with a variety of different things and those drive me nuts. So I'm just obsessively weird about that. I try not to get really caught up in it and I do not try to label every XLR cable or every RCA audio stereo cable uh, in my life because it just, you can drag you down a tunnel if you do that. Mitchell? Well, welcome to the tunnel, Bill. I label everything that I have lying around. Um, and the other method I like to use is uh, we call it the proximity method. It, uh, keep whatever it is, that little Guga that you got, that uh, battery or connector that's specific to a device. Like I've got the Tilta camera uh, cage here. I've got all kinds of little gadgets for it. I try to keep it close to the camera because that way I know that if I'm looking for it, it's only going to be within an arm's reach away from that device. Yeah, so you're doing kidification. That's exactly, you know, to me, these five things must go with this camera. So I want them always put back 
in yeah, hopefully the same thing that holds that camera. It's a fun topic, and maybe we'll do a second hour on it sometime. All right, we're very close to moving into our second hour today. So just a couple of things. Uh, we're very, very much excited about uh, our next guest, and I see some shots starting to come in. So obviously we are going to be going there very quickly. Uh, I do want to note that tomorrow... Uh, the Zoom folks will be back with us. So for those of you who rely on Zoom for any of your business or just interested in what Zoom is doing, our dear friends Andy Carluccio, Jonathan Cucatello, Sam Kakaiko, they'll all be here to share the latest on liminal apps, uh, what's happening with their event system, all of that stuff. And, of course, as they always do, they are generous enough with their time to stay here and answer questions. So if you're using Zoom in any kind of professional circumstance or even just for your own personal projects, uh, this is your chance to sit down with the head of client innovation, Andy, uh, the innovation technical program manager, Jonathan Cocatello, and uh, Sam Kakaiko, who's the events innovator for them. So they're all going to be here. They're going to be talking about what is happening with the Zoom platform. And it's your really amazing opportunity to get in there and talk to the people behind the scenes and get an idea of what is happening. Um as always, um, the Saturday show is going to be a little more laid back. I don't remember. I think we're between the education hour uh, breakdown that we did before, so it may be another two hours. I don't have any list in front of me about what we're talking about on Saturday, but I think it's going to be a little more relaxed um, as sometimes that happens. Um and Sunday is always a really wonderful thing. If you haven't been here for our Sunday show in a while, it is not webcast, so you have to be here to see it, and that means we don't have to be quite so specific about speculation. So it's a little more relaxed, a little more theoretical, a little more... Um, what are, what are the kind of things that you want to talk about? And we can get a little more deep and a little more philosophical and maybe, as I said, speculate a little on where the industry might be going. So those are always the ways that the show works. Um, that is going to take us to the top of the hour. And I see a feed coming in from Alex, but I don't see Alex. Alex, can you hear me? Or Joe, hey. is that? Yeah. yeah, there we go. There's Alex. Hey, if you can hear me now, um, and Bill, I'm going to have you, I, I can't see anything on your side. Copy so I'm, that. I'm the camera operator. You can see me here. So I'm moving around here. <laughs> so so I'm the camera operator behind here. I do not have a rig anywhere near this rig. Um, so, uh, so anyway, so I'll... Uh, I'll take over for a little while and just talk to Joe a little bit. You'll hear me off camera. Joe, can you explain to, to us a little bit about, and by the way, Joe Lindsay, hey, my, my younger brother. <laughs> a, Hi, a, Joe, from everybody at Office Hours. Everyone's looking at me like, it's, it's, it's Alex if you stretched him out. <laughs> <laughs> so, so anyway, uh, so um, Joe, can you explain a little bit about this rig? Sure. Um, this is the Airy Trinity. Uh, essentially, um, one of, if not the most advanced, uh, you know, stabilized system for a camera operator in the Steadicam world. Of course, there's you know, all different kinds of ways to get a stable shot. Um, this is just one of them. Um, what it does is it combines... Hey, Alex, we're not hearing him direct. I'm not sure if... Uh, if yeah, we're getting the... him through you. Right. It's your mic that's the only thing we're hearing. Oh, well, we're going to check this real quick. Hold on one second. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's see here. You should be... Um, see, we were No, hearing... I saw that he had a he had a uh, headset mic on, and we were definitely checking. not hearing test, that. We were test, hearing test. You, you're, you still hear, just hearing... Uh... Yeah, just you. Okay, hold on one second. Mm. So um, 
just cut away for a second. I'm going to swap out the mics, and then he'll just talk to you. Stay, stay, stay. Sure. So for those of you who don't know, Steadicam for decades has been the premier brand for doing the kind of, uh, I don't have a tripod, I need to be mobile, but I want the shot stabilized as much as possible. You've seen Steadicam shots in all the major motion pictures, all the huge advertising uh, things. Whenever you need a shot that doesn't make someone sick and needs to be handheld, uh, Steadicam is the brand we've all gone to. There are Steadicam Testing. operators, particularly those who hey, work in the hear, top end. Can you hear Joe now? Can you hear me? No, Testing. still coming no. in okay, second stand system. Uh, so um, when you get a good Steadicam operator, and it's not an easy thing to do. I had a Steadicam rig on once in my life. I had to shoot a little uh, local thing where we were doing interviews. And three days I tried to teach myself how to be a decent Steadicam operator. And at the end of those three days of of strapping it on and working, I was barely up to, I think, 10% of being able to really up. There you go. Perfect. Yeah, great. yeah we're good. We're good. Got it covered. So let's get well, out of me and back to you. I could hear, I could hear that uh, introduction to Steadicam, and that was perfectly described. Uh, you know, in general, um, a... Uh, very complicated tool, but once you understand it, it will change your life entirely. Um, my career, my way of thinking creatively about framing and camera movement and everything completely changed. And to be honest, uh, at the time, I didn't consider myself a very good handheld operator. I've since kind of built up on those skills, but I got into the Steadicam because I just didn't really like my handheld operating. Um, but before I dive into this entirely, I think it's worthwhile just to take a look at what a regular Steadicam sled looks like. Um, obviously, it doesn't have the camera. This would be the top stage where the camera goes. Um, this is where I monitor. Obviously, batteries go down here. And the basics are that the entire sled is balanced on this gimbal. And this gimbal has completely changed form, shape, functionality over the last really three or four years with the invention of what's called the Steadicam Volt. Um, before, the gimbal used to just be this one centerpiece that everything was balanced on, which was great for 30 years, 40 years, something like that. But what ends up happening, I mean, this allows me to tilt and pan perfectly, but it also allows you to roll the horizon, and uh, which can be great in a 90s rap music video, but in general, we want that horizon to be super locked. And um, that's what this new electronic gimbal does for me. Um, still, even though I have the Trinity, still my go-to tool is a Steadicam sled, um, just because for one, it's been used forever and everybody knows how to build for it. Whereas the Trinity is a much bigger beast. This is easier to transport from location to location. It's much lighter. Um, so if I don't need the Trinity, I often don't use it. Um, but I do love it because it is an amazing tool. So um, what you would see here is this is, if you can picture this being sort of the same stage as the um, Steadicam, and then on top of that, we now have another stabilized gimbal, which, um, let's turn this off, you can see, this is what it would normally be without the motors on, it rolls, it does whatever it needs to do inside, I pop the stabilizer on, and now it's completely rock solid. And um, I have to control the tilt, which is actually one of the hardest parts 
with this tiny little joystick as I'm navigating space with this massive tool um, and maintaining headroom. So that is actually one of the more complicated pieces of the entire thing. Um, but I'll go ahead and throw it on and just show you the basic capabilities of this thing. So with Steadicam, your camera height is limited. Let me see if I did that right. One second. Yeah, so your height is limited by the boom range of your arm, right? So you have all the way down to here to all the way up there, and that's it. You just fly through a shot however you need to. When you tilt, the camera tilts with you like that. Um, and then if you need to have a lower shot, your other range is to flip the entire camera upside down like this, and you have what's called low mode. But now the issue is that I have the same boom limitation, it's just at a different height. What the Trinity allows us to do is to actually get everything within that range all in one shot. And um, so as I fly through a space, I can start with somebody's feet and then slowly boom up to reveal them, walk through, and the whole time is completely stabilized in f with five different axes, which is how it's marketed. I'm not exactly sure where the fifth axis is, but really it's, um, you know, it's stabilized with the arm, it's stabilized with the gimbal here, which is similar to that old gimbal that I was explaining to you before the Volt came out. Um, it's also stabilizing the horizon. So that'll stay rock solid the entire time. And um, one of the less talked about, but my favorite things about it is that it's also stabilizing the tilt. And people think, um, you know, when they see the Trinity moving around like this, that it is just for camera height. But what's really nice is as you're walking through space, that tilt is going to stay perfectly solid. And what ends up happening with Steadicam is as you're walking through space, sorry, there's like a Steadicam mode so I can demonstrate what the camera would do. As you're walking through space, sometimes you might, you know, speed up, slow down, and your tilt adjusts just the, I mean, that's a much more dramatic thing than whatever happened in an actual shot. But even just a tiny little bit of uh, tilt wobble can just adjust people's headroom throughout the entire shot, which after years of operating doesn't become an issue, but it's just really nice to no longer have to think about that once you set the tilt, it's just locked. And what you end up having, since it's so stable, you end up having a shot that's a little bit like a hybrid between a Technocrane or a, uh, any kind of crane with a stabilized head and a Steadicam, so you're kind of walking around with a little, little crane on you. Um, the other thing that you can do with this that's really nice is um, you can, you know, find other obstacles that you can reach over in ways that you weren't necessarily able to before. So you could start with a close-up on someone here and then back around. And f apologies for my framing. I'm more concerned with just showing you the rig at the moment than the actual frame itself. But... Um, that's generally the, the basics. And there's other um, really amazing feats of engineering where um, they have something called, uh, you know, like you can look around a corner with this. 
So if you look at the head, I can actually turn the camera within the head like that. So I could reach around something and then slowly pan forward and it's, you know, perfectly facing forward. So if I looked at Alex, I'll actually do like a proper shot here. Pretty epic. Complete with lens flare. Yeah. And then, um, but what it honestly took me probably about two years of operating this alongside Steadicam um, before I felt like I was operating it and not the other way around because it is such a huge brain, you know, puzzle the entire time you're operating because right now I have three different ways I can adjust the headroom. One is with the arm. I can boom the entire rig up and down. The other is with the sled. I can boom just the camera up and down. And the third is with the tilt. And they, um, these two uh, options, the camera height-wise, either with the boom or the sled, don't affect storytelling necessarily in the same way that tilt can. I mean, it, uh, I mean, it all affects storytelling, but in terms of you know, the, uh, camera height, I will either do camera height with the arm or the sled based on the space that I'm in. And then the tilt um, is just kind of along for the ride and I just adjust the headroom in that sense. Um, so you can see how it's an amazing tool, but you can probably also see um, why I still would want to use Steadicam. This is the smallest Trinity build I've probably ever built. This whole thing gets much longer on the bottom with the bigger cameras because the more weight you put, this is all on the center of gravity here. So the more camera that's up here, the more sled needs to be down there. So you can imagine as I'm in this sort of spear mode here that with this whole thing sticking way out like that, this can be really hard to navigate through space. So if I'm in a, doing a shot where I'm in a crowd or um, you know, I need to weave through corners and wrap around things quickly. This might not be the tool that I would choose. Um, the other, I mean, I could always put it in more of a steady cam mode like this and just keep the sled completely uh, vertical. But the problem with that is that now I've got all this extra camera height here, and I've also got all this extra camera height here. So I may not be able to get the lens exactly where I want it. And again, this is a much smaller rig. So even if I were able to boom it all the way down to show you right now, the chances are the bottom of the sled is going to be so long that I'm just going to hit the ground with it if I wanted to get the lens right in the sweet spot. And almost always, I just kind of know from my height, my starting lens height for most people is just, I can feel it out of my peripheral, is right about here. So if that is my, my basic starting point and the sled is already almost going to hit the ground, then I'm not really in a great space to start a shot. Um, hey, Joe, I think people would be interested in how much that weighs. Obviously, it's modern composite materials. How light have they been unable to get something that complex? It's pretty heavy. I mean, it's hard to say. Um, I don't, I guess because the camera builds all change, I haven't, I don't really put a ton of uh, extra brain power into uh, general, you know, weight range, but it would probably be somewhere between, you know, anywhere between 40 and, you know, 60 pounds on a regular day to 70 pounds. 
just for the sled. Um, the arm itself is, I think, 12 pounds. The, um, you know, the vest is another 10 pounds. So it just kind of like all adds up to quite a bit on your body. And that's got to be a lot of stress. How much break time do you need? And is there something specific? You don't operate it for a particular time? No, I mean, it just, I, it's all it kind of because the camera build changes and the situation changes. I mean, I've operated um, for 25 minutes at a time. And what happens there is I start to throw, I don't want to say throw my weight around, but um, if someone tells me that I have a 25 minute take I have to do, then I start getting really picky with what camera is being used, what lenses, what accessories I'll allow to be on the camera because I need to keep this thing as light as possible and I can tell them that and they'll understand and they'll work with me. Um, generally speaking, this uh, is more of a basic build than you'll ever see on a film camera. Normally there's um, a wireless follow focus, which we don't have today, um, but it attaches to the lens with a motor and also needs to have a receiver. And then on top of that, the focus puller will often need what's called uh, a light ranger or um, a cinetape. And that is the cinetape are little uh, sonar horns that um, will constantly measure the distance between the camera and what I'm pointing at. Um, the light ranger, I have no idea how that magic works. It just does. And there's all kinds of things I see on people's monitors and overlays and stuff that I've decided just to let that one go. I don't even know how it works. When you were starting out, did you do specific exercises to try to get biomechanically ready to, to toss this thing around? Mostly just practice. Uh, because it is a very, I mean, now I have exercises that I do, whether it's, you know, bodyweight squats and burpees, and it's mostly just, um, core strength and leg strength that you need for this. Um, without obviously if your legs are trembling through the entire thing, uh, that's not going to help you at all. I've only had one or two shots I had to bail on because we had done so many takes and my legs just weren't responding anymore, which is a terrifying feeling. Um, but uh, in general, yeah, leg strength and core strength and understanding how to properly engage your core when you're in the middle of a shot. Um, and that is applicable to any rig you wear, whether it's this Movi uh, handheld shot on your shoulder, easy rig, anything. All those you need to understand um, how to yeah properly engage your core. And is there a gate that you've learned that helps smooth things out or does the rig do most oh, of that work? It, well, yeah, that, I mean, I have a little bit of a funny gate um, depending on the rig that I'm wearing and what the situation is. And because I'm, uh, I did take a Steadicam course for six days way in the beginning. And after that, I just have years of um, being self-taught and probably a ton of bad habits. But um, in theory, what ends up happening is, uh, you know, this does the bulk of the work. Um, and, but different lenses will show different imperfections differently. So a, Interesting. a tighter lens, let's say you had a 50 or a 75 or something, a tighter lens is going to be harder for um, you to keep someone perfectly in the frame than maybe a 24 or, you know, 21 or something like that. Um, but it's going to look really stable because you don't have as much peripheral information to show um, either horizon issues or 
um, what I call there's sort of like a peripheral wobble that happens as you walk. And um, you don't notice it when you're walking in everyday life because your brain is stabilizing everything you're seeing as you walk. Um, but if you pay close enough attention, and this is when I don't know how many camera operators do this or how weird I am for doing it, but there are certain mental exercises that I did early on that are the types of thing that you can do anytime, anywhere, and nobody has to know about it and all the weird things you're doing. And one of them is if you walk, let's say you're walking next to a, uh, a fence of some kind where you can really see um, something zooming by, you pay attention to your peripheral vision. And as you're walking, you want to find a way to walk so that your peripheral stops doing this. And it's a very subtle change. Interesting. But your the operating will completely change because you um, now understand how to if you can stabilize your brain with a certain gait, then that just translate translates perfectly over to the rig. Um, another thing that's really important, and this goes to any kind of uh, mobile camera situation again, like handheld, uh, Steadicam, anything, is being getting really good at maintaining a specific distance from your subject. Um, because as you're following someone through a space, uh, you want the storytelling to be intentional. So you don't want to create any kind of extra distance because as soon as you create extra distance, now more of the world is going to be in focus, more of the world is going to be seen, and you're further away from the character. And that could be something that you want, um, but you just want to make sure that it's because you want it and not because you can't maintain that space. So one of the things, again, another weird thing you can do uh, that nobody has to know about is let's say you're walking through a crowded space and someone just happens to be walking in front of you. You can just sort of practice mentally keeping that same distance. And when they change their, their speed, you change your speed. And to a certain degree, I mean, you don't want to look like a creep at an airport, but that type of mental exercise is very valuable in um, just understanding how to navigate a space. Are there any favored Steadicam shots that you've seen or that you've executed that oh, people yeah. might know about and you can give us an idea of what it allows? Sure. Um, there's, I mean, man, there's so many. I should have had those prepped in, uh, in my head. There's obvious ones like, you know, some of the classics, like the Goodfellas, um, Copacabana shot is huge. Um, that's your question, right? Like you're just asking specific well, shots. Yeah, just what, what, has, what has been a challenge that you've run into that this rig really helped solve in a practical sense on location or on, in a field shoot? Yeah. Oh, sure. Um, well, generally, um, you know, at the level that I'm working at now, we have most every tool that we're going to need to accomplish, accomplish the shot. When I first started... Um, my Steadicam was kind of what I used for everything um, because we didn't have a dolly. We didn't have a dolly grip. We didn't have, you know, extra hands to lay down track. We didn't have cranes. We didn't have any of that. So I just was using it for any time I wanted uh, the camera to move without having handheld shake. Um, whereas now um, we just look at the shot. Let's say um, the director says, I want the shot to start here 
and then I want it to go over here, and then I want it to go over there. And he'll, he or she will, you know, um, give us a rough idea of where it is. We can look at it and be like, well, does the camera have to be here or here? And can that be a straight line? Because ultimately, most of us would favor doing a shot on a dolly because a dolly is classically just a absolutely beautiful, elegant way to tell a story. But not everything happens on a straight line. Um, you can do a lot that can be um, tricky with a straight line just in terms of blocking and having the actors move in a way that make you under or uh, forget or not even notice that the camera isn't weaving all over the place. It's all on one long track. But sometimes you need a little bit more dynamic uh, movement. Sometimes you need it to be uh, more frenetic. Sometimes, you know, there's all kinds of reasons to use a Steadicam over the dolly. But almost all the time, it's because the camera isn't moving in a straight line. You don't have a crane and or you need to go up and down a hill or uh, over stairs. And sometimes it's just really nice to have it for a walk and talk. Um, anytime that two characters or three characters are just walking and talking, it's really nice to, for the actors not to have to walk over track. Um, so that's another option for that. Um, and ultimately, some people just prefer the imperfect aesthetic of Steadicam over the dolly. Some people hate it. Sometimes the Steadicam is only used specifically when nothing else can be. Um, that's not my opinion. I love the Steadicam. I love the aesthetic. I especially love the aesthetic of the Trinity. Um, but uh, I'd say I'm kind of in my my happy place when I'm operating either of them, probably more so with the Steadicam just because I've been operating it for 10 years now and I feel very one, one with it. There's no extra brain power going into how to operate it. It just is all coming together. And I don't have to have any extra communication with somebody else to say, oh, I need to get in at this point in the shot. I need to get in a little bit faster. I need to boom down at this spot. I can be in the moment entirely uh, not relying on anybody else and just get exactly what I want. Um, so almost all the time, I, I would love to operate Steadicam, even though it is hard on my body and it is harder on everybody else. For that reason of me just being a control freak, I love that. Um, <laughs> however, over time, I've had to become much better about uh, communication with other uh, dolly grips or um, you know Technocrane operators or anything like that. I mean, if you start talking about a technocrane, that is ultimately the filmmaker's finest tool in a lot of ways because you can achieve almost everything you can with a Trinity or a Steadicam other than, you know, something that extends longer than 75 feet or needs to go uh, through a house and weave around. I mean, obviously, the, that type of thing can't be done necessarily with a crane, but... You can, with a small crane, um, even something as small as like a 23 foot or something like that, you can achieve a lot of really elegant camera work um, without having to do much. So um, there are tons of amazing tools out there. These are just the ones that I specialize in the most. Mitchell on the panel has a question and we're going to go. We got a lot of questions stacked up for you from right. the regular viewers. Mitch? Joe, thanks for being on the show. Big yeah. fan of uh, Steadicam and all things, uh, you know, what you're doing there. Um, I'm admiring the build quality of the Ari uh, device there. 
um, it's, that probably makes it heavier. And uh, because it's heavier, are you restricted on what cameras you can use? And is there an advantage to using an RE, uh, say an LF on there, because it talks to the, uh, the, the device that much better? Excellent questions. Um, for one, there isn't really, uh, I mean, there isn't any camera that um, I cannot put in here that I would, let me think how to phrase this. If it can't fit in the Trinity and I can't be held by the Trinity, I don't want to hold it on my body because um, it's just going to be too much weight overall. Like an IMAX camera, obviously you couldn't fit it in there, but an Alexa 65 can fit in here, which is a massive camera. Um, I've, for the most part, the bulk of my work has been either uh, something in the Alexa family or the F or sorry, the uh, Venice and the Venice is a much beefier, bigger camera. And what changes, I'm going to take the arm off so I can kind of, uh, demonstrate a couple of things. Um, the biggest restriction for weight and camera size is just the size of the ring itself. Alex, if you come around this way, it might be a little easier. So you need to be able to fit all the accessories um, in this small ring and have it be able to slide forward and backwards for balance. The, that is honestly the most challenging part of the camera build. Um, the weight itself isn't that big of a deal. If I turn the stabilizer off, you can see one of the um, restrictions we have is just the distance between the back of the camera and this, as well as any cables that might hit something in here. And um, But what you can do to avoid that is this stage actually rises up another three inches. So by pushing this entire stage of the head up this way, now I've got a bunch of clearance for um, the extra gack that's back here and um, keeping the cables away from the crossbars. And um, the head needs to be balanced in a way that the other tricky part is that um, it's not with Steadicam, you, with the camera balance, you need to think about fore and aft and side to side. Um, whereas, uh, with this head, you actually need it to be balanced to a point where it'll always want to just stay where you leave it. And that is just so that the feeling of the sled as you go from low mode to high mode is constantly even. Um, so that's why I have these counterweights up here because this camera is, uh, or really it's not necessarily the camera but it's the, um, the way I have it staged made the head really bottom heavy. So by putting those weights on there, it just keeps it perfectly balanced. Um, I would say the, the biggest, um, I mean, the biggest advantage to having uh, an Alexa of any kind, whether it's the mini, uh, the LF, mini LF, or the, uh, the new Alexa 50, or 35, um, it does all, all the ports here are um, ready for that and it's, they're all made with that intention. Um, one of the biggest things is uh, if you have, happen to have a focus puller that wants to use an airy focus system, um, that is when everything becomes exceptionally great because what you end up with is the MDR, which is the motor uh, I actually don't even remember what MDR stands for, but it's the motor control uh, for the focus system that also controls iris. That is all powered from the camera or from the ring. So now the only extra weight that I have to deal with are just the motor sticking out and not having to find another place. Because you can imagine 
with every accessory that I put on here, I have to make sure that this balance is still right. So if I need to put motors that hang from the top of the camera here and hang onto the lens, now the whole camera is gonna be top heavy. So I need to put counterweights on the bottom. So the more, um, the more you put on um, for just functionality of the camera, the more I have to put on in terms of counterweight, which now that translates into more weight for the arm, more weight for my body. Um, so for me, the uh, advantage of something like the, uh, the Mini LF or the Mini is just weight and simplicity. Um, and I think uh, everything in the Airy family has my favorite image. Um, I will say the Alexa 35 uh, is by far my new favorite camera in every way. Um, from a uh, DP standpoint, the way it uh, you know renders colors and exposure is amazing. From an operator's perspective, it is the perfect ergonomical size, shape, everything. You can put it everything. It fits here. It fits into a small space. Um, it's the right weight um, because I think people really focus on cameras being small and light. But what that doesn't help you with is stability um, because with size and weight, comes inertia and with inertia comes stability. So um, oftentimes if I'm operating handheld, I'll throw on extra weight, um, especially on the back to keep the whole camera balanced perfectly on my shoulder. And with more weight just makes it so much more butter. You don't have as much, like if you have a, a camera, even the way that Alex is holding his camera right now, um, no, I'm just saying, no, it's not. It's not horrible. Um, it's a perfect example of, uh, you know, if Alex were to hold a small camera that's this big by the camera itself, it would have this tiny little like DSLR shape. But he has extra accessories on there and he has an extra base plate on the bottom of it. All of those things are creating more inertia, which is creating more stability. There you go. We do have a ton of questions. Let's get into them. Mitch, what do we got first? Uh, first question comes in, Joe, from Stefan Fischer in Wurzburg, Germany. How and when do you train the wide variety of shots possible in advance or on site before the shooting? Uh, on site. Um, it depends. I mean, if, if I was doing what's called a, a long oneer, uh, a oneer is just a single take shot, um, weaving through a big space. Um, that could come down to budget, whether or not um, we have enough time to rehearse the whole day before or multiple days before. There are some uh, oneers that I haven't done, but I know about that they rehearse for two weeks beforehand. Um, for the most part, the work that I do, uh, I find out uh, on the day what I'm going to do, and we just finesse it on stage with the actors, with... Um, you know, and kind of just go for it and see every take. Uh, we just make small improvements over, you know, over, and that can happen with a, with a long shot like that. Anything could go wrong at any point and everybody's super understanding about it. At least maybe I'm fortunate enough to say that the people I work with are really understanding um, because they know that we're just out there doing it. Um, but, you know, actors forget their lines. Uh, I might bump the rig. Um, something might happen, an extra might run into my rig, all kinds of things can happen and you just say, oh, nope, let's go back to one and that's it. And you move on. Um, 
in general, this might be not the best advice to give. Um, but I would say I, I try to live my, uh, what I call uh, my shot by shot lifestyle. Um, so that I'm hyper-focused on the shot that I'm working on and not as concerned about what's ahead or behind, just staying as present as possible. In general, that is something that'll um, change the way you work as if you can take all of your mental energy and focus on the moment. Um, because really the shot starts here, then it goes to the rig, then it goes to everything else because you can only control what you can, can control. So you start with keeping yourself calm and relaxed and know where you are mentally before you step into the rig. And then after that, it's making sure the rig is good. And then after that, you start working on the world. Next question. From Talalek Lopez Waterman in Galisteo, New Mexico. Hey, Joe, when operating, do you have in your mind the light direction and proximity so your shadow doesn't become visible? All the time. Um, I, I, I guess I take it for granted. I don't even really think about it as much. I can tell um, usually what I'll do as the shot is being set up, especially as an A camera operator. Um, a, how the camera operators work on set, it's all letter-based hierarchy. So A camera is the main camera operator, B cam is secondary, C, etc. cetera. Um, but as A camera, you're a representation of the camera department. So you need to be out there looking at stuff all the time. So in general, one of the first things I do, especially with um, Steadicam, is as things are getting set up, I'm just walking through the space constantly and I'm looking for exactly what you're talking about, any kind of camera shadow. Uh, if I see something move, I'll just go over and just start waving my hands around to figure out what the source is. And then I can, I'm usually wearing a headset. I can tell the DP, hey, this light over here is creating a hard shadow and they'll either adjust the light or they'll tell me I need to, the lighting is so important for a specific actor or the mood that they want that I can't move the light. I have to stick with moving my body. So, and of course, if I'm in a um, available light situation, um, like we're in right now, I'll always try to backlight people. So uh, I'm using the sun and finding my position where it can be. And I can kind of tell, um, you know, over time, the width of the lens uh, and the proximity you are to the subject can change things too. Um, almost always if I'm going to cast a really hard shadow because I'm crossing the key light, um, it's going to look terrible anyways, because you never really want to shoot into the key because it's so flat. Um, so in general, uh, yeah, all those considerations are, are one of the many that we have to consider while we're, uh, while we're in the middle of the shot. Next question. Douglas Carmichael asks, do live broadcast events ever use Trinity operators or is it mostly for dramatic work? Uh, definitely. Um, there's a guy, Sean Flannery, who's a big uh, live operator. Uh, I'm pretty confident he was operating uh, on a Super Bowl with Trinity for Rihanna's performance. Is that, was Rihanna this year? I think so. Anyways, I, I saw some stuff go by with him using his Trinity for live. Yeah, for sure. Next question. Next one in from Chris Clark in Tempe, Arizona. Do the physical demands of operating a Steadicam place a time limit on the length of your career, analogous to the career time of a major league baseball pitcher? Yeah, uh, for sure. Um, I'd say I'm in the best shape I've ever been in, and it's all because of Steadicam and what I've had to, uh, over time, start to condi condition my body to. I'm very fortunate that my wife is a therapeutic yoga instructor, so there's a lot of taking care of my body along the way. 
and doing small repairs as I go. Um, I know this isn't going to be forever. Um, I would imagine my life and career may take another path eventually, whether it's being a director of photography someday or uh, maybe a, a whole life pivot in general. But I know I'm not going to be operating this when I'm 70 years old. I'm already feeling, uh, after doing it for 10 years, already feeling things different. Um, but I will also say I think I'm in better shape than I was when I started because I didn't care about my body. I, I, I don't want to say I, I didn't care about my body, but I didn't take care of it as, a, as I would a tool. Um, I didn't think about, you know, going skiing or snowboarding and how that could affect the next year of my work or anything. I mean, anything could happen at any point. Um, but the key for anything you do is considering how important your movement is and how you need to take care of your body, stay in good shape. And because uh, what you never want is to see the look of disappointment on a director's face when you say you can't do it anymore. And fortunately, the only couple of times that I had to say that were very extreme situations and everybody was understanding because they knew we were just surviving. Um, but yeah. A lot of wisdom in that answer. Next question. Tommy Shans from St. Paul, Minnesota wants to know, I just got a Ronin SC and I'm a rookie. What are the biggest mistakes you see folks do? The ones to make you cringe. What are the top tips for us newbies? Thanks. Mm. Mm. Um, I, I'm not super familiar with gimbals um, in terms of the basics. Um, but I will say uh, a few things that you want to watch out for. Um, I would really work on your footwork uh, if you're hand-holding uh, a gimbal because the benefit that I have is an arm that's holding it. There are other rigs you could get, um, what is it called? A, uh, oh man, I have easy rig in my head, but I can't think of what it's called. Ready rig that has the two arms that come out and attach underneath or above, I can't remember. That'll help stabilize your footwork. But if you have a small uh, Ronin, I would really focus on what I was explaining before and work on your peripheral vision and try to get your footwork to a point where if you can picture your belly button not going up and down, uh, trying to keep that. Because for me, I mean, that's what I always think of because that's where about where the arm attaches. So if that's rock solid and the arm is doing less work, it's all going to translate better that way. Um, so I would say uh, same thing with a um, Ronin. I would probably, you know, tuck your elbows into your hips and hold it like this and then work on trying to walk um, so that your hips are in place. Um, I would say as far as things that are cringeworthy, um, don't talk too much. Uh, listen. I find that when I'm talking, I can't listen. So I tend to uh, just keep my eyes and ears open as much as possible. But too much small talk on set can be a hindrance to the overall goal, especially if you're day playing um, and you're not part of the full-time crew. Um, and you just want to make sure you have two of everything. Um, I ran into a situation earlier uh, today where Alex and I decided to power the camera through my sled instead of with a battery. And I realized, I remembered that I had uh, altered a, my power cable for a four pin uh, XLR a while ago. And uh, I didn't have that cable anymore. So later today, I'm going to be ordering two of those because you never know when one is going to go down and you don't want the whole production to be waiting on you. The next thing that's very crucial as a camera operator, and I could probably use it right now, 
it's always having gum or mints because uh, good manners with bad breath gets you nowhere. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I think that's about it. I mean, it's also very easy um, to feed into the energy you get on set when you're have like this really impressive rig. You kind of get a little bit of like a, I don't want to say rock star status, but that can very easily go to your head. And um, it's much more valuable to have a, uh, a humble operator that is uh, focused on story and focused on the talent, the actors, um, and making sure that you're in the right place. And it's not all about you. It's about the greater whole. You've said so many intelligent things about a takeaway. Good manners plus bad breath gets you nowhere. I don't know why. I'll start on next yeah. question. <laughs> Brandon Buttron from Indianapolis, Indiana. How weatherproof is this setup? Um, it's tricky. Um, with the, uh, I have rain covers that cover all the different elements. One that covers this entire piece here. One that covers uh, all the battery stuff. And a big, you know, you just use um, like a shower curtain or um, uh, like a, what is it, a shower cap that you can put over different parts of the camera. If I know I'm going to be working in uh, heavy rain, it's always a, a bummer. And I might say, unless the Trinity is absolutely necessary, um, then I would rather do it with Steadicam because the Steadicam is just much easier to bag. Um, whereas this, you know, because this moves in so many different directions, if I were to bag the head, there's no, um, there's no direct way that I can bag it that it's not going to get caught up on something. Um, so there's, you know, they did a pretty good job of making it, you know, sort of like a heavy mist uh, proof, but you know, there's still some exposed cables here and there. I've gone and taped up every part of the rig that I don't use on a regular basis just to keep dust out of there. Um, my, one of the things I love the most about my arm is that the springs are completely encased and you can pop these canisters out, um, for different weight ranges. But what's nice is that the only thing that's really going to affect it weather wise is in the, um, small hole that I make adjustments. Um, Having said that, I still bag that. Um, so it's not really, you just have to be ready. Fortunately, the camera is probably the most sensitive to weather, and uh, your assistants should be uh, capable of bagging all that up for you. Next question. John Fisher from Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, has a question. What is the response time like between movement and compensation? I'm not sure I totally understand the question. I think... Um, in terms of, yeah, it's all in real time. I mean, um, I'd say um, there's like a microsecond that there's a delay between the monitor and the camera, um, but it's all just a matter of, you know, it all responds well. The only thing that uh, is adjustable is um, with software is just the speed of the tilt. Um, and uh, that is a response that you change sometimes on the fly. I have this little button here that changes my um, user profiles. And as I go through them, um, you know, I could have one set at a tilt speed that's good for wide angles, and then I could click twice, and then it'll go to the exact same setting, but just the tilt's a little bit faster. Um, but in general, yeah, it's all in real time. Did I remember you saying it took a couple of years when you first started to kind of get the, the gear out of the way and that your intent and yeah. the action coalesced? 
Yeah, because it's just constantly, you know, this type of thing where you're figuring out, okay, well, where am I in space? Not only am I thinking about the frame and making sure that all those other things I was telling you about are happening, making sure I'm the right distance away from the subject. I'm also thinking about the tail end of the rig and where I can swing it around and not hit it, where I can step down um, while operating a joystick that is uh, about this, you know, the size of a pencil eraser. Um, so it, it is definitely took me some serious time, um, kind of fumbling around in the backyard. Fortunately, there was a period of time not so long ago that the entire world shut down and I could just operate this in my backyard while I was waiting for work to pick back up again. Cool. Next question. From Paul Buchan in Columbus, Ohio. On set, do you have additional help to set up and manage your rig or is it just you and the ACs? Oh, entirely. Um, so uh, it depends on the level, um, you know, starting in the Bay Area, um, things for me started a little bit smaller where I was building everything myself. And then that ended up getting into a situation where I would show up with a rig and I would build it up, make sure I had my batteries and all that set. And the assistant would build the camera for me and I would put it on and balance it. Um, at the level I'm at now, I almost don't manage my gear uh, much at all. I show up at prep um, before a movie starts and I show them my equipment. We build it together. We take a lot of photos. I have a camera assistant that has, um, will take photos and put laminated printouts in all my cases so that all the assistants can grab things and put all every piece exactly where it needs to go. So when I show up, I just come up, make sure that it feels right on my body and I'm ready to go because I'll make adjustments uh, to the rig as we go, no matter what. So they just get it all roughed in for me. Um, they move my carts for me. Um, and then the dolly grips really help move our, uh, my camera around as well. Um, whether it's, you know, following me around while I'm operating uh, handheld, because I only want that thing to be on my shoulder for every second that it matters. As soon as they saw, uh, say cut, I pretty much just go like that. And my dolly grip is there to catch it and just takes the camera right off my shoulder. Next question. J.B. Wendell in Thailand, given the global scope of the industry, I'm curious how many professionals are at your level using the Trinity, the Trinity internationally. I did some work in China and knew a Trinity operator named Junior Lacano. Is it a small community? It is a small community. Junior is a rock star. Um, I, I have to thank him in particular for um, taking some of the most complicated elements of Steadicam and putting it into a awesome little YouTube series. If you haven't, if you're ever interested or you are a new Trinity operator, um, I would highly recommend looking up his tutorials on his accessories, how he balances, totally changed my operating. So thank you, Junior. Um, but very small community, especially in the States. Uh, I'm not sure exactly why that is. It is definitely growing tremendously, uh, especially since the movie 1917 came out. Um, not at all. The only tool that was used on that movie. Um, there are so many other amazing camera tricks that they use to stitch the entire movie together. This, I think, just happened to be the most visually exciting uh, to see in action. Um, so that alone sort of blew up its po uh, popularity. Um, my understanding is in Europe, they're much more common. Um, but... Uh, I don't even know how many there are now. I haven't really kept track. I know when I was looking into buying this about four years ago, um, there were just a handful in, on the West Coast, maybe five or six. 
um, and then a few more on the East Coast, and then a couple more sort of sprinkle over the country. So that was kind of part of why I wanted to get into it in the first place, because I was doing a lot of commercial and corporate work and um, was having trouble with people coming into a small market wanting to bring their operators with them. Um, Steadicam is an amazing tool, um, but there are thousands of operators. Uh, whereas because there's so few of these, it was an, an additional, uh, you know, sort of leg up on other operators that are coming into town. Next question. Next question in from Lucas Herzog in Mainz, Germany. Have you ever met or done training with Trinity's inventor, uh, inventor Kurt Schaller? Um, just the, um, the airy, um, it was just sort of a, a general airy training program that they put together during uh, lockdown. Um, because what had happened was I um, was about to pull the trigger on this and decided I really needed to get training first. And I had scheduled it for mid-December when I knew that uh, nothing else was going to be going on work-wise. And they decided to push it into Christmas break. So I was like, ah, I'll just wait until the next one comes around in April. And then the world blew up. So um, honestly, uh, Alan Lennox uh, is, I believe, still the head of um, camera stabilizing systems at Aerie. And he has been uh, a lot of tremendous, you know, tons of great help. I've reached out to other operators. Um, but for the most part, uh, the bulk of the training I've done is either the video uh, tutorials that Junior made or that Kurt had on the Aerie website. Uh, Mitch has a quick question. Uh, just a quick one. The original inventor, Garrett Brown, have you ever had a chance to take a course from him? Oh, yeah. Uh, Garrett's amazing. That, my first Steadicam course was um, at in, um, oh, I'm forgetting the tiny little town outside of Philadelphia um, that they've been having this classic Steadicam workshop for 30, 30 some years. Um, and watching that, for one, uh, Garrett is just so tall and so big. It's crazy to see what I would consider a big rig on him because he, he just makes it look like a toy. And it's such a part of him, um, both uh, creatively and physically. Uh, it's one of the most inspiring things to see is to see Garrett. And he's just such a fun guy. Um, and yeah, really, really blessed to just be in the same room as him, let alone get to see him operate the camera. Next question. From Kenny Hampton in Greenville, Illinois. The operator's monitor seems quite small and far from your eyes and also mm -hmm. moves up and down with the movement. Is this an issue or others looking at the live framed image at the same time as the operator? Mm. Awesome question. I'll explain to you why. Um, that was something that I really had to get used to. Um, one of them being that you're absolutely right. The... the um, because the monitor is attached to the hand or sorry, the handle um, that goes into uh, my arm, it is going to move up and down with the arm independently of the camera. And so uh, what I'm used to is over here where I have a much bigger monitor that is further away from me. And it's set up in a way it's down at the bottom of the sled so I can always see where my feet are at the same time. Um, the other uh, benefit of that is that by looking at the monitor, I'm always looking at the rig itself. I always know where it is in space. Whereas with this, you know, if I get too uh, uh, sucked into tunnel vision and I'm just looking at the monitor while over here, my rig is just doing all kinds of whatever, I can completely lose track of where the camera is, where the back of the slut is, where cables are, where I'm walking. 
Um, so what you get better at is trusting the rig and knowing that you can take your eyes off the monitor. And I'm constantly looking back and forth and looking around knowing that the extra stabilization I'm getting from this will hold in a different way than Steadicam. If I take my eyes off the Steadicam monitor, it's much more um, likely that I'll blow my frame in some way. Um, and I also, the first time I saw a recorded Trinity shot, I've been practicing at home for a while and then never really recorded much. But when I did a proper shot and I was freaked out because I was looking at my monitor and I saw my monitor moving like this the entire time, I was adjusting my footsteps to, you know, counteract that, whatever. And I looked at the monitor and my brain exploded. I could not believe how stable and solid it looked. Um, so although this is small, it's small intentionally because anything bigger adds extra weight. But more than anything, as I'm flying around space, if I had a bigger monitor, um, it would start to hit the head as I'm moving. So this is specifically even a slightly bigger uh, monitor than what came with the Trinity. I actually had this to start with, this little trans video that I now use as a low mode monitor. So when I flip the camera upside down, I have a small monitor here and I don't have to keep my eyes off my feet. Next question. From Chris Fenwick in Emeryville, California. If you had to pick one shot that you wished was your work, what's your favorite Steadicam shot you look up to? Man, that's a great question. Um, there's so many great ones. Um, there's one, obviously, there's a True Detective shot that everybody was talking about when it came out. Um a couple years ago, there's there's shots that aren't necessarily Steadicam that are amazing. Um, there's a, a oh perfect that's it. Uh, Alex just mentioned reminded me of a shot that he introduced me to that I have now introduced to a bunch of other people. It's the opening shot of a um, film called Athena. The whole movie is amazing, um, but that opening shot is absolutely incredible and a really great behind the scenes featurette that's all on Netflix. Highly recommend checking it out to see what is involved. That is definitely a situation where they rehearsed for weeks leading up to it because I mean, I think it's a 10 minute shot. And um, actually what we use uh, to complete shots like that um, in general are, is called stitching. So you find uh, elements that'll cross the frame in a way that you can take one shot uh, one section of the shot and just complete that perfectly. Then you have another element, a transition. It could be a whip pan. It could be um, a corner of a door. It could be walking inside, outside. Um, that one, I was like, I could not find the seams. I can almost always find them. There are a couple of obvious ones that I thought were obvious, but then watching the behind the scenes, I'm like, well, that wasn't even a seam. That was just part of the shot. Um, absolutely mind-blowing. I highly recommend it. Thanks, Next Alex. question. Oh, sorry. Douglas Carmichael's asking, how do you usually transport that Trinity? Do you check it in as Ugh. luggage Ugh. or ship it as air freight? And have you ever had problems with airport security? Um, I have done both. Um, I hate doing both. Um, fortunately, since I've had it, most of my work has been in L.A., so I just drive all my gear down. Um, but I... You just have to be insured and hope for the best. Um, a lot of times I find it's, uh, I like to keep my gear with me, even though it's, uh, or keep, keep it away from me for the least amount of time. So to me, flying with it makes me feel a little bit more comfortable, even though it's changing a lot of hands and going through a lot of different space and kind of gets just thrown around. I have a lot of, I mean, everything is in flight cases. 
um, that can really take a beating. Um, you show them the fight cases, though. They're fun. Sure, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Those are, the, the, I mean, every once in a while you have a job where you're um, what's called a truck operator, which means that you're there for political reasons and you're not actually doing anything. So you take time to organize and redesign your cases as much as possible. Um, this has gotten a little beat up over time, but this has everything from my um, PC tablet um, that I have to use to adjust the Trinity settings. I have, um, this is actually pretty amazing. This is my um, remote for the Trinity head. So turn this guy on. You can see right now I can adjust the roll with my remote. So I could have a uh, DP or a director or another operator slowly adjusting the roll as I'm moving through space um, and also uh, tilt control. And I haven't used this in quite a while um, now that I've kind of gotten a handle on the joystick, but for a little while... Um, as it was still feeling a little clunky and uh, robotic, I would have another operator jump on or the DP and help me with tilt if I was doing a really dynamic move that was hard to hold headroom. Um, and tons of great stuff like um, cable wallets are amazing. Just really great ways to keep everything organized. And this is what I was talking about where I have two of everything. I have my everyday cables that are loose in front that are on the rig now. And the backups are in plastic bags, so I can always just grab what I need, and everything's labeled perfectly. Um, and then uh, this is the printout that I was telling you about that my buddy made for the last one. That's an Alexa 35 build. And he had it set so that any assistant could just grab it and put it all together, which is pretty clever. Um, but yeah, you want to make sure that everything is organized to a point what that um, you know where it is, but also in a way that's really straightforward. If you're on set and you need somebody to go find something for you, you don't want to be like, ooh, is that in my backpack, in the cable pouch, in the whatever? You just need to know, like, this is there, this is there, this is there. Um, and then, I mean, they're, all my flight cases look like this in some way. Um, but I would say, yeah, transportation, any kind of air travel is... A bummer. It's just kind of part of it. Um, I know people that have lost their entire rigs to it, but I also know people that have lost their rigs uh, just in what's called a walkaway, where you leave all your gear overnight somewhere and security wasn't as tight as they said it would be. So I hate being separated from my gear, but there's a point where you just have to accept that it's part of the deal and uh, make sure that you have your own insurance and uh, my gear never leaves uh, my garage until I have a certificate of insurance from the production um, to make sure that I'm double covered if anything happens. Joe, main, we're already at the... Issue with, the main oh. issue with this stuff, though, isn't just the uh, expense. You know, like, let's say they stole um, just my sled, right? Um, that would be a huge expense. That would be a problem. If they stole this case... For me to go through and find every little trinket that has made my life absolutely incredible, if I had to remember what it was and where it was and have to rebuild my entire kit again, that could take months. So that type of thing, it's, you know, people focus the energy on the money, but sometimes it's the time that's just as important. 
Joe, it's been an incredible hour. We could go easily. You know, one mark of a great guest in office hours is we have as many questions at the end here as we did at the beginning. So uh, it's been amazing. Is there any last wrap-up? Do you want to give you 30 seconds? Can you hear us? Oh, okay. Well, it looks like we've oh, lost sure, our yeah. Um, yeah, go ahead. Thanks for uh, enjoying uh, my walkthrough. Hopefully it all made sense. I'm very excited about this. Um, this type of thing has completely changed my life. Um, and if anybody has more questions, feel free to reach out. Perfect. Thank you so much. Wow, what an, what an instructive and illuminating uh, second hour here on Office Hours. I know a lot of people are, in, are interested in this and it, this was just been a wow. Don't forget, tomorrow uh, we're going to have the whole Zoom team here. Andy Carluccio, Jonathan Cocatello, uh, Sam Kokaiko. Everybody's going to be here. So if you have questions about Zoom and how that works, please remember tomorrow is your day. And as always, to everybody who comes together every day to make office hours possible, uh, this wouldn't exist without so many people. We wouldn't be able to hear from absolute experts like Joe to give us a window into a world that we'll never really get to work on. But understanding it helps us to understand the whole flow of how shows come into into creation. So for our producers, everybody who put questions in, thank you for all the questions. You were prolific and fabulous questions today. For the panelists who came to help us understand in the first hour and also add questions into the second hour, great job as always. And to the crew in back end who sits there quietly every show and puts their effort from all over the world into making office hours possible. If you can, stick around and watch the credit roll and note how many people it takes to make this village come to life every day. After Hours is 24-7. As always, we'll see you tomorrow. Just watching that rig made my back hurt. <laughs> one one uh, comment. Joe is definitely a Lindsay. I love the fact that he talked as much about the aesthetics of what he does and and it it's not you know the hardware's great important clever but it's the intent of telling the story that always comes back to that yeah and the passion for your craft that's uh that's so important totally totally easy to Thanks. lose impossible to replace <laughs> Thanks, everybody. See you tomorrow.